I think, um, you know, I think, you know, I said before, you know, you, you start with these people can actually believe these things, but I was, I was looking at former colleagues that were sending horrific things, um, you know, whether it was, uh, I would say, foreign disinformation videos from YouTube or Rumble or Parler. Uh, I was looking at things that it almost looked like it was a holy war uh, within the text messages themselves. And it was these are sitting members of Congress that, you're talking about. You know, that's correct. Sitting in former members of Congress, you're talking about Trump appointees, you're talking about fundraisers and donors, you're talking about group texts. And, and you know, I would get something, um, Anderson, that might be as crazy as, you know, the orcs are storming the bridge, right? And we need to have some wizard spells to cast on them to, you know, stop the, you know, the, the monkey birds from attacking us. And I would have somebody high up, you know, very high up in the Trump administration say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's true. And it wasn't just what they were saying. It wasn't just this sort of spiritual warfare coupled with, you know, QAnon type of, um, you know, religiosity and, and types of conspiracy theories. It was the fact that nobody pushed back or they would tacitly agree or they would say this is the plan that we need to do. And the names that you're seeing out there right down the news that's reported, there's some amazing open source intelligence researchers, things like that, that people can see on Twitter and other posts. Those people are in these text messages. And when you see them, Anderson, it is a roadmap, but it also is something that you, you really have to try to get your arms around. And I've read those text messages so many times, you know, you almost, you almost feel like you're reading a fantasy novel. And I think people need to understand that the committee has an amazing challenge to try to get around the horror of those text messages and some of the things that you see on there. And it is horror because these are people that are serving our government. And you can see, you know, almost QAnon and other conspiracy theories had inundated the Republican Party all the way up to the top levels. And, you know, some of those were like the Jenny Thomas text and things like that. It's, it's absolutely stunning that these individuals in a position of power making policy. Season 2, Episode 13. Countdown to June 9th. Welcome to Capitol Insurrection Report podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6th, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction of this week's episode comes from former Representative Denver Riggleman of Virginia, describing his work on behalf of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, where he oversaw the work of former intelligence personnel in collecting and compiling some 20 million lines of data from communications between individuals who are the subject of the investigation, work that is ongoing and which he estimates will take at least another year. Uh, hopefully they can issue charges before that. Riggleman appeared on Anderson Cooper to talk about what he believes to be the significance of the public hearings uh, that are upcoming next week, now less than a week away, on Thursday, June 9th at 8 o'clock p.m. on prime time to be carried by major networks, C-SPAN, um, and the committee itself, I believe, is going to have a, a live video feed. I've been saving some ideas and research for this very episode uh, because I want these topics to be fresh in mind as the nation bears witness to the official chronicling of the attack, which I earnestly hope and believe will serve as a prelude to a final reckoning for the enemies of electoral democracy in the United States. This is the last weekend before the House Select Committee begins to reveal its findings to the nation, to the world, and to history, to our children and our children's children. I see it as a moment of world historical importance, an inflection point every bit as significant as the insurrection itself. I've also been doing some thinking about the issue of how to best cover the actual hearings themselves. 
I think that what I may do, rather than script an episode, as is my usual practice, will be to try to put something up in the feed as soon as I possibly can. Basically the podcast equivalent of a reaction video. Uh, these might be a little bit shorter, with far less research on my part. Hopefully I, I have enough left in my brain uh, that I've stored up in the memory bank to, you know, give some, have something cogent to say. Um, just a bit more informal, and I'll be speaking extemporaneously. So if they could, I'll actually put it up. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But expect that uh, following, I would hope, each and every one of the public hearings. Again, beginning next Thursday, June 9th at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. I'll also take a look at an intriguing possibility with regard to the sedition tours, including a possible identification of a person who may have been on Barry Loudermilk's reconnaissance tour. I'll also discuss Mark Meadows burning documents in the fireplace at his office, Trump advocating hanging Mike Pence, as well as new grand jury subpoenas coming from grand juries investigating the central plot to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power and keep Trump in office. But now, of course, it's time to turn to the numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 819 individuals charged, an increase of 22 since the last episode. Good pace there. Total of 378 indictments, four deceased, no change there, one dismissal, same as always, one acquittal, 310 convictions, an increase of 11 since the last episode, and 139 sentencings an increase of seven since our last episode. One of these new convictions was for Timothy Hale Cusinelli, an Army Reservist and security contractor for the U.S. Navy from New Jersey, who decided to go to trial on all five counts that he was facing, four misdemeanor counts that all the parading defendants typically get, plus one felony count of 1512 obstruction of an official proceeding. It was a jury trial that was presided over in the court of Trump appointee Trevor McFadden, the judge who has demonstrated a willingness to essentially nullify the law, uh, you know, by acquitting them in bench trials, right? As we saw in the case of Matthew Martin, the first outright acquittal on the January 6th docket. But that's not what happened here. I know I've talked about Hale Cusinelli in the past. He is an avowed fascist who sometimes has worn a Hitler mustache, uh, harasses his co-workers, has advocated for euthanasia, uh, supports the idea that, quote, Hitler should have finished the job. Uh, he's just a terrible person. Uh, about five and a half hours of deliberation, uh, the jury came back and found Hale Cusinelli guilty on all counts. And it apparently only took that long because three jurors had questions about whether or not Hill Cusinelli truly had intended to obstruct Congress. Um, and that makes some kind of sense because Hill Cusinelli did claim that he didn't know that the Capitol was where the Congress did its business. I think he lied on the stand there. I, I, I You know, this is ninth grade civics. Um, New Jersey has oftentimes, you know, the, the best public schools in the country, according to most rankings. Uh, he's a fascist. I don't think he's he's actually that stupid. So, yeah, uh, he did take the stand in his own defense, and one juror actually said right out they didn't find his testimony compelling, saying, quote, 
he wasn't credible at all. And I, I would probably tend to trust that juror's that conclusions on that. So we will get to see how much time McFadden actually gives Hale Cusinelli at sentencing. But of course, he does get credit for 16 months' time served, as Hale Cusinelli is someone who, you know, despite not having apparently committing acts of violence, um, is repulsive enough that even Trevor McFadden, even Trevor McFadden, decided, you know what, maybe letting a Nazi out on bail isn't a good idea. And so he had been detained for this whole time. The defendants I'm going to profile for this episode are Devin Steiner, 40, of Worcester, Ohio, and Adam Miller, 39, of Smithville, Ohio, a village six miles from Worcester. Now, they go on this list of defendants who are related to one another, uh, sedition families. Um, they are brothers-in-law, although I'm, I'm not sure which one's married to which one's sister. If you're interested in the sedition families, you can go back and listen to Season 1, Episode 18, A Family Outing. Uh, a lot of people that you know, took the, the, the time to, to bring their families along. They, they traveled in family groups. There were cousins. There were uh, you know, fathers and their children uh, and uh, you know, apparently brothers-in-law as well. Now, both of these uh, defendants reside in Ohio's 16th Congressional District, which is represented by Republican Anthony Gonzalez, which is a little bit interesting because Gonzalez is actually one of a tiny minority of Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in his second impeachment. Now, Ohio wound up losing a congressional district after the 2020 census, and surprise, surprise, it was Gonzalez's 16th district, and so he decided not to stand for election uh, elsewhere in the state. But that's not really what I'm going to focus on with regard to these two. Um, but again, I'd like to raise the issue here of how long it's taking to get the Justice Department to, you know, prosecute these cases. These defendants aren't even particularly interesting defendants. Uh, they're just slightly a cut above the average parading defendant. They've been charged with five counts, one more than the usual parading defendant, and no felony counts. And like many other cases, there are multiple redaction failures in the charging documents here. Uh, the, the government actually failed to redact Steiner's home address twice for some reason. Um, I mean, it's publicly available information. You find his home address online, but the Department of Justice mostly catches these. Mostly. As far as what the conduct uh, has been alleged is, it's similar to many other cases. Steiner and Miller... Uh, allegedly entered the Capitol at about 2.29 p.m. and leave at 2.54 p.m. on January 6th. Also, reading the charging documents, it seems that this one is similar to uh, a lot of the other charging documents. What I mean is, after you read lots of these things, you, you kind of get a, a sense, and I realize there are different authors, but with regard to the work process, uh, there are different things going on. I mean, for example, if you look at a lot of the older charging documents, they'll talk about cell phone data, and they'll say that, uh, you know, this defendant was in this place at this time, and we tracked them with a cord of their phone. In some of the later cases, they will actually use, like, a geolocation map, and they'll include that in the charging documents. That's not done here. Um, so, I mean, these things evolve over time, and if I had to guess, these were actually drawn up 
earlier, and for some reason they've charged him now. I, I don't know. Maybe that's not true. Maybe it's just a difference between authorship. Um, but, you know, it, I think, to my mind, it's a measure of, of the fact that these are kind of low-priority um, defendants. And so now I would like to give a uh, point to the sedition hunting uh, community and give a shout out to the work of protecting electoral democracy in the United States. According to the criminal complaint, quote, on or about January 26, 2021, the government received an anonymous online tip that De Devin Snyder participated in the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And at that point, they listed unredacted uh, home address in the criminal complaint. So Steiner's identified 14 months ago, and they're just charging him in late May 2022. Um, and according to the complaint, quote, on or about March 15th, I met Steiner at his residence at 1034 North, I'm not going to give the whole address, Worcester, Ohio. Based on my in-person observations of Steiner and a review of the above-described videos, Steiner appears to be the same person as the person in the red Trump beanie and camouflage jacket described above. Steiner declined to speak about the events of January 6, 2021, and the interview was terminated. So, the criminal complaint goes on. Quote, On or about April 8th, 2021, your together with FBI agents, it executed a search and seizure warrant at, let's address again, 1034, blah, 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 Mr. Ohio. This is very curious. Uh, the officer is just kind of being absurd here. I, I don't know why. This is, you know, for some reason he says on or about April 8th. I mean, it happened on April 8th, right? I mean, I, I don't see why, you know, they know what date they raid somebody's house. Uh, they don't. The government doesn't execute search warrants without adequate documentation. I don't know why he adds this, this weasel uh, language of on or about April 8th. I'm pretty sure uh, they got the date right. Anyway, just want to review here. So they get their first tip identifying Steiner on January 26, 2021. On February 4th, 2021, the FBI spoke with a person known personally to Miller who had called to report Miller as having been at the Capitol on January 6th. They do their first interview with Steiner on March 15th. And then on April 8th of last year, they execute a search warrant on Steiner's home address where they find, among other things, the hat that Steiner wore in the photos, his camo jacket, his backpack, and his phone, which included, of course, incriminating evidence. Everybody felt the need to take selfies and videos and not delete them. And again, this is this is after he's been interviewed by the FBI, by the way. He, anyway, not the, the sharpest tools in the shed. The criminal complaint was filed on May 26, 2022. So, you know, a month and a year after they raided his house, they filed the criminal complaint. So, you know, my guess here is that this is just a back burner case. Uh, these defendants weren't affiliated with any significant groups other than the fact that Miller appears to have been some kind of QAnon cultist like many of these attackers. Um, this is just a low priority case. And, it, you know, neither of them seems to have committed a crime of violence. But 
the pace at which the DOJ is working really, you know, isn't making a dent. Um, you know, I think we may learn something from the public hearings with regard to the work process at the DOJ, which has run parallel uh, to that of the committee. There are an unknown number of defendants uh, do, who I believe may have given testimony, uh, and there's some unknown other number of defendants who may be the subject of sealed indictments. But again, when we look at the, the question of how how many defendants do we know have been identified, and then how many do we know have been charged, some of them are going to be these back burner cases where there's it's a workload issue, right? Um, I did a, a, a poll on Twitter about this, and uh, most of the people you know, who responded seem to agree that this is probably a workload issue. However, I also believe that there may be additional sealed indictments that may account for some of the people who are either public figures or who have self-doxed or who were identified by sedition hunters or even perhaps other people, right? I mean, many people uh, have been identified through, you know, people in their community, irate ex-girlfriends, uh, people on Bumble, you know, all these, all these different sources of information. Um, but some of these cases aren't being done because they're back burner cases. But there are other cases where it is very strange that people haven't been charged. And I'd like to talk about that now. So, as we saw in the case of William Todd Golson, the Oath Keeper, whose name was mistakenly not redacted from Exhibit 10 in the Vallejo pretrial detention exhibits, there are sealed indictments. Wilson's name appears to have been sealed in part because the government didn't want to show its hand. They didn't want to reveal that it knew that Elmer Rhodes had the number of an intermediary who could put him in touch with Donald Trump. I think some of that explains the gap between the number of cases where volunteer open-source intelligence sleuths have made identifications and sent them to the FBI and the actual charges that are officially listed on the Capitol Breach page. In those cases where there's a link between the mob of attackers and the inner circle of plotters, the government is going to keep those cases sealed so as to not tip their hand with regard to the targets of the investigation. Other cases I know many volunteer online sleuths have expressed misgivings about are people who were there on January 6th acting as marshals, uh, in the sense that, you know, one is a marshal, serves as a marshal at a demonstration, um, using megaphones to direct the crowd, filming, acting as some kind of crowd control. Uh, some of these people have also been identified, and yet they too have not been arrested. Um, or, you know, again, also people have known links to VIPs, identified but not arrested. The same basic logic applies here. The closer to the center of the plot, the later the arrest. Oddly enough, it's like both of these things are happening at once. You've got people, you know, like Steiner and Miller, who are un unimportant and therefore not arrested. And then you've got other people um, who, you know, like Wilson, right, have effectively pleaded. This, their cases are sealed, uh, but it's not publicly known. And, you know, um, they, again, uh, they, the government is trying to not tip its hand with regard to those cases. So it's entirely plausible that some of the persons who appear to have engaged in more organized behavior 
may be the subject of sealed indictments, as Wilson was. And once again, I should know better than to record on a Friday. There has been yet another redaction failure, similar to what we saw in the Wilson case, this time for one Trevor McDonald, a proud boy, a.k.a. hashtag ClocksworkAlexPB. So he's a proud boy, long since identified, who is now listed by name in another case involving the Proud Boys. So it's nicely spotted by Marcy Wheeler at Empty Wheel. And if this follows the same pattern as we've seen in the Wilson case, the next step will be for McDonald to be formally charged and to plead. But again, I, it's, it's kind of serendipitous. You know, once again, I, I've got something that's, you know, and I, unlike some other people, it's like, this is not divine inspiration, but, you know, it's like, um, you know, I think of, like, the, the uh, new apostolic reformation people, right, you know, uh, who, you know, oh, God gave me this. Like, no, it just, it's happenstance. Things happen by chance. And I wanted to talk about sealed indictments, and it looks like, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is probably yet another example where a redaction field redaction fail, excuse me, is going to cause the unsealing of an indictment. So let's turn back to, to those people who are known to have exhibited organized behavior. Now, if you look at the people who are known to have been identified, but who have yet to be charged, it's rather intriguing. There are people whose identities are publicly known, or who are known as having been identified at, by sedition hunters. And there's a certain number of these people uh, many of whom you know, had their information given to the FBI over a year ago, and there, yet there's no charges that we know about. Now, many of them are people who, you know, I would have to believe, have to have a higher priority than someone like Steiner and Miller. Again, that's why I did profile of them. They're, you know, low-level defendants. There's a, I mean, they, they could have picked these guys up at any time, decided not to just because... They're, they're not even that interesting. Uh, they're just basically two brainwashed goons from Ohio who went on some kind of weird buddy movie road trip. I haven't talked about this much, but if you look at the behavior of defendants uh, on January 6th, whose identities have been reported to the FBI or are publicly known, uh, and yet they've not been publicly charged, there's a pretty clear pattern that emerges. If you compare these defendants to other defendants, they seem to be uh, much more likely to be early breachers. Uh, they appear to be much more likely to use bullhorns. They're often equipped with radios. They're filming in a purposeful way to the exclusion of other activities. Some of them brought a change of clothes, which they changed into, which is kind of weird, uh, you know, not spontaneous behavior. Some of them were seen cutting fences or removing barricades. Uh, many of them, oddly enough, are Proud Boys. I mean, there's just a huge number of Proud Boy defendants, and um, I, there are a fair number of Proud Boys uh, who uh, are identified. Um, and, you know, I had this, right? This is in the script, before, which I wrote before uh, the, the McDonald case came up, but it's a perfect example of that, right? So there are a lot of Proud Boys. Everyone always talks about uh, Enrique Tario, but, you know, a lot of the Proud Boys, I think, are... Uh, turning states' evidence in these cases. A lot of these defendants have engaged in apparent organized behavior, and some of them use devices such as flashbangs, 
that show some premeditation. Some of these people have serious AFO counts. And what that means, of course, is that they have a strong incentive to cooperate. These are very serious charges. And so, uh, you know, if someone's identified and they uh, are an AFO defendant, that, that is really odd, right? I don't think those are cases that are going to go to trial. I think those are cases where this person has something that the government wants. And also cases attacking the media. Uh, remember, basically, you can, you can kind of infer that you know, there's a functional subdivision and there's a certain proportion of these defendants who were charged, I think, with attacking the media. Their job was to take out the media, make sure the media didn't cover it. It's weird, right? These people were filming it themselves, but for some reason they didn't want the media there uh, filming it as well. Um, and so, you know, a lot of those people were somehow themselves from some kind of alternative right-wing media universe. But those are, you know, broadly speaking, if you look at the kinds of people who have been identified or whose identities are known, um, who have yet to be charged, those are some of the characteristics they, they share compared to sort of the, the mass of defendants at large. It seems that in the more important these people are, the more likely it is that they have not been publicly charged, even though they've been identified. And so these are people who, by the premeditated and deliberate nature of their behavior, will seem to be more likely to be tied in with the people who organized and coordinated the attack on the Capitol. Now, this again, like many things, of course, is speculative. Maybe the Department of Justice is just bad at the jobs. Maybe they're just hauling in random goons who didn't commit crimes of violence instead of people whose behavior would indicate links to the central planning of the attack. I don't think so, though. I mean, I, we will know one way or another soon or enough, but you can call me a, a Pollyanna. Um, I, I tend to have an optimistic interpretation of this. I think that they're just mopping up people like Steiner and Miller at this point, as well as hundreds of others who have yet to be identified at all, and they're doing so in part because they already have the cases against many of the more significant attackers that we don't even know anything about. Now, admittedly, this is not falsifiable. It's open to different interpretations. I would say that it's likely that there are cases already against many of these people, but we just don't know about them because the government is trying to maintain the integrity of their case against the people at the very apex of the pyramid. So, under this interpretation, someone like this not being charged is somewhat paradoxically evidence that the government is methodically and quietly building the most important part of the case. Nonetheless, you know, again, I'm a social scientist, you have to entertain the alternative hypothesis, which is certainly plausible, right? or maybe different versions of an alternative hypothesis. It could be that the Department of Justice is simply bad for jobs, and they're arresting identified attackers by pulling a name from a hat. Or more sinisterly, uh, Merrick Garland could be protecting the Republican Party by arresting these low-level goons while shielding the organizers from prosecution. I don't think that's what's going on. Just putting it out there for balance and to show the holes here. Right? The same evidence that I'm citing, that I claim, shows that the Department of Justice is building a robust case 
could be interpreted to mean exactly the opposite. Um, I've tried to show my work as much as possible over the course of this podcast, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't point that out, that out right. Either way, we're going to know soon enough. Now, this is an issue that I think, you know, a lot of people who do the actual work of sedition hunting are going to be familiar with, right? And it's something that I've avoided talking about, uh, precisely because I think it's going to be relevant, you know, right now, right? It wasn't as relevant earlier on, uh, but also because, um, you know, there's the issue of, of how the government goes about building these cases. And also one of the unwritten rules I've held to in this podcast is the practice of avoiding naming uh, potential criminal defendants who haven't yet been charged. The Wilson case from the Oath Keepers had me a, a bit of a, you know, I was in a bit of a pickle because I downloaded the material as of April 18th. The episode came out almost two weeks later. It took me a long time to get through it. Uh, I, I spotted it almost immediately, but I didn't want to publicly identify a defendant whose identity the Department of Justice hadn't intended to make known yet. So I was rescued from that ethical dilemma by sheer happenstance, right? So by the time I wrote the script, he was already publicly charged uh, earlier on the very day that I recorded the episode. Uh, so, you know, I could just go ahead and say his name and identify him as the likely source of material in Exhibit 10. But here, you know, uh, in addition to the Alex Joneses and the Ali Alexanders, there are any number of other people whose identities are publicly known who, as far as we know, haven't been charged or haven't even gotten a subpoena from the January 6th committee. I'd like to point to one example now. I, again, going against my own practice, but I think this time I'm safe. People such as Keith Lee, right? Lee is best known for heading up the MAGA Drag the Interstate group in Texas, although... Uh, Basically, if you see someone, you know, flying huge flags from their, their truck, I mean, they, they're, this is an organization that has spread uh, kind of nationwide. Keith Lee also chartered buses from Texas, and he spoke at the same event with Bianca Garcia from Latinos for Trump and Elmer Rhodes. So this is someone who's a VIP and a public figure. Lee also, according to a report from the New York Times, scouted the Capitol, and egged on the mob with a bullhorn, and ultimately made his way inside the rotunda itself. Again, all allegedly, it's on video, but allegedly. There are many others like him, people who could be called as witnesses by the January 6th committee. So he's doing a lot of work here. I'm using him as a kind of a stand-in for the many public figures and people who have been identified by sedition hunters for a long time and who have yet to be charged. To my mind, the fact that someone like Lee hasn't been charged is almost inexplicable. What he did was every bit as bad, allegedly, as what Elmer Rhodes did, right? I mean, Rhodes didn't even go in the Capitol. Lee did. So, and yet, and again, this is kind of evidence to, to support my spirit theory. What happened with, with Wilson? He kind of falls off the radar. This guy is a very active oath keeper. He's doing these per personal security details, um, you know, and Lee, and, and Wilson drops off the radar, right? The same pattern is observed with Keith Lee. He's dropped off the radar. I, I've looked. I've tried to find out what he's been up to since January 6th. 
and it's a it's a whole bunch of nothing. And this is the kind of person who I think would be just very difficult to shut up under most circumstances. So, in my imagination, at least, he's under a sealed indictment and cooperating. So, I'm not sure, like, uh, what world in which goobers like Steiner and Miller would get arrested, but a, a known public figure who raised money to bring in busloads of seditious Texans to the Capitol, and who himself invaded the Capitol, you know, what, in what world does, does Lee not get a charge, right? And, you know, these random goons get charged, you know. I, I think it probably has been, right? I mean, his identity has been known this whole time. But in the end, of course, you know, we just don't know. That's the whole point of sealed indictments and conspiracy case, right? I believe the take-home message from the Wilson case is that there may be many more of these sealed indictments than people have heretofore expected. And that's going to account for some proportion of the individuals who've been identified or who are public figures and who yet have not been charged to date. Next, I'd like to turn to the question of what happens next? So, I've maintained for quite some time that following the public hearings, we will see criminal charges filed by the Department of Justice. I feel like I'm a minority on this. Uh, there are people who are very committed to the idea that Merrick Garland is never going to do anything, that he uh, wants to protect somehow um, the institution of the Department of Justice. I would argue that if he's going to protect an institution, probably the Republican Party, there are people who legitimately argue that uh, if this is going to destroy the Republican Party, we can't have that because we have a two-party system, and the Republican Party itself has to be protected at all costs. Nonetheless, I would like to address the question of what the next steps are and whether or not there has been any kind of cooperation between the Department of Justice and the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. Now, the Department of Justice vigorously defends its independence. It's supposed to be above politics and also to support the rule of law, to depoliticize things. But obviously this is inherently political, so it's hard to depoliticize it. Nonetheless, it doesn't necessarily mean that there has been no contact. Uh, you may, may remember that in the run-up in the 2016 election, James Comey wrote a letter to Jason Chaffetz supposedly to comply with the oversight function of Congress, which Chaffetz immediately gave to the press. Now, a number of things happened. Of course, uh, this was used by, as a pretext by Trump to fire Comey, uh, which is just the most delicious irony of all. Um, but Chaffetz himself, as member of the House and chairman of the committee, faced no sanction at all. No action from the Department of Justice, no action by the House, no consequences of any kind, even though what he did was very extraordinary. This kind of letter from federal law enforcement to uh, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee should not have been made public. It was entirely inappropriate. And yet, nothing happened to Chaffetz. So, you know, I mean, it's probably entirely coincidental that Chaffetz chose not to run for re-election, uh, despite being a, a up-and-coming star of the Republican Party and chairman of a powerful committee. But if you look at the org, org chart, the Department of Justice is a very large organization. And yet the Department of Justice in D.C. is fairly small. Uh, most of the AUSAs operate in the several states. Very few of them will actually wind up making it to D.C. 
in any given generation, you probably never have more than maybe one or two degrees of separation between any two given staff members at the D.C. Department of Justice. Institutions operate according to codified sets of institutional rules, but also according to informal social norms. How inconceivable is it that informal social connections could be a play? How many degrees of separation are there between Tim Heafy and Merrick Garland, for example? People who may not know one another personally will certainly know one another by reputation. Now, it's certainly true there have been signs that all is not well with regard to the relationship between the House Select Committee and the Department of Justice. There have been complaints from committee members with regard to the contempt criminal referrals, for example. Complaints that I think are, are very much on point. And recently, there was a bit of a kerfuffle when the Department of Justice requested access to the transcripts of testimony from witnesses that had been given before the committee. A kerfuffle I mentioned in the last episode. But moving forward, it's important to remember the structure of Tim Heafy's investigation, as this will surely play out in the committee hearings. There's the green team, the purple team, the red team, the blue team, and the gold team. It would be wonderful if each of these teams had a corresponding team at the Department of Justice to seamlessly bring criminal charges based on the investigative work of the committee. We're going to see a lot of the evidence that I would have honestly loved to have had access to for this podcast. For example, as I've mentioned many times, I'm fairly obsessed with the possibility that financial records will show that the organizers paid for travel and accommodation for members of the mob who attacked the Capitol. And Jamie Raskin has said publicly that this is part of what the Green Team is working on. So, on paper, we wouldn't expect close coordination between the committee and the Department of Justice. But we should also remember that Congress has an important role in overseeing the executive branch, which is how Chaffetz weaseled out of having any consequences for his actions with regard to the Comey letter. The committee has an oversight role that's included in the resolution, resolution establishing the committee, as well as language specifically stipulating that, quote, to build upon the investigations of other entities and avoid unnecessary duplication of efforts by reviewing the investigations, findings, conclusions, and recommendations of other executive branch, congressional, or independent bipartisan or nonpartisan commission investigations into the domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol, including investigations into influencing factors related to such attack, end quote. Now, I don't really see the committee being able to fulfill this function without some level of coordination with the Justice Department. In an ideal world, we would see federal prosecutors begin to issue charges against the central conspirators soon after the conclusion of public hearings. That's what I expect. I could be wrong. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that that's my expectation ever since the, the public hearings were announced. And so, you know, as a hypothesis, we will get to test that very shortly. The committee is also beginning to put out some of the actual agenda items for the public hearings. CNN has reported that Mark Short, Pence's former chief of staff, Greg Jacobs, Pence's former chief counsel, and Michael Lutick, the former federal judge who counseled Pence not to go along with 
Trump's unconstitutional scheme to remain in power, have all received invitations to testify. These are invitations, not subpoenas. I know Ludic, for example, uh, is certainly going to testify. He's been very vocal, um, you know, among, I mean, you can count him among people who helped save de electoral democracy in the United States. And I know I've often said that I regard the Federalist Society as a cancer on the face of American jurisprudence. Nonetheless, um, Lutig, you know, of course, a Federalist Society member and a well-known conservative jurist, actually stood up for democracy that day. And so I, I think it is important to recognize uh, when that's happened, right? I mean, you know, there's this weird thing where uh, Trump only recruited people who were endorsed by the Federalist Society, and yet there's a sense in which he was also constrained. He was constrained by the existing uh, institutions of uh, basically the rule of law, right, within the, the conservative movement, within the Republican Party. And ultimately, uh, you know, as much as I'm not a fan of the Federalist Society, nonetheless, Lutig uh, winds up standing up for the rule of law, for electoral democracy, and against the, the incipient fascist regime of, uh, you know, a Donald Trump re rejecting the results of the 2020 election. So, we're going to hear from a lot of people in Pence's circle, right? I mean, Mark Short, that's not, you know, it's not a surprise, right? I mean, we, we pretty much knew he was going to testify. Um, but we're going to hear from, the, you know, all those people, if not from Pence himself, regarding the events of January 6th. Next, I would like to turn to the subpoena that has been issued for Peter Navarro. Now, the possibility of coordination between the committee and the Department of Justice, to my mind, gained more support over the course of the past week when a grand jury issued a, subpo a subpoena for Peter Navarro, Trump's former trade advisor and a central figure in the plot to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. The architect of what he called the Green Bay Sweep Scheme, to force state legislatures in key states to decertify election results in the 2020 presidential election. Now, there's been contradictory uh, reporting on this. Some outlets are claiming that this subpoena is related to the contempt of Congress referral that was issued to Navarro for his failure to comply with the committee, committee subpoena. But there's also um, the possibility that this is part of an ongoing investigation into the election scheme. I personally think it, it might be both. There's a possibility that it, it might be both. Um, I'll put a link to an article on this in the show notes. Now, interestingly, the, the actual subpoena, you know, didn't say comply with the, the committee's subpoena. Instead, they asked for Navarro to give to the Department of Justice the same materials and testimony that the committee had requested. In so many words, I mean, that's literally what it said. Give us all the stuff you were going to, you know, the, the committee is requesting. So to my mind, this is an indication that there is a parallel investigation with the Department of Justice acting as a kind of a backstop, using their superior ability to enforce subpoenas as a weapon to get Navarro to give them what they need for a criminal investigation into the effort to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. Now, as I wrote those words, Things have changed. 
That's how quickly evolving this is. So, um, basically what's happened right now, today, like just a few minutes ago, Peter Navarro was arrested. He is currently in custody. And he was arrested for contempt of Congress. So what I'd like to say is like, it's not either or, right? I, I believe that these are more fully integrated than people have had reason to believe uh, to date that, uh, you know, it's kind of, of seamless, right? There is a grand jury that is investigating the efforts around election disinformation. I've already talked about Jojo Miller, Joanna Miller, and Peter Navarro, uh, and the report that was fraudulently attributed, attributed to Catherine Freese, uh, but it was actually the work of Jojo Miller, and then Peter Navarro rewrote it uh, and issued it in his own name. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is someone who was, that's a violation, right? That's, you're breaking the law, basically. Maybe a campaign attorney could do that, which is why they attributed it to Freese to begin with. And I, I expect fully that we will hear testimony regarding this, right? That is clear evidence of, you know, the fact that Navarro was using government resources, government employees, White House staff to do something that more appropriately, you know, not that any of this is appropriate, uh, might have been done by the campaign, uh, but to use government employees to actually try to overthrow the government and obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. Now, you've probably seen it, but of course, the, literally yesterday, um, Navarro went on Ari Melber's show. And I don't know why he goes on Ari Melber's show, by the way. I, he is not the sharpest tool in the shed. Ari Melber just owns him, just continually just, you know, owns this guy. And, uh, you know, just he keeps going on anyway. And the thing is, you can't claim executive privilege and then go and talk to the press about the same things that you are claiming. Just nothing. The Biden administration says there's no, no privilege that applies. And he's talking about this publicly to the press on national television. So how dumb is Peter Navarro? Uh, there's the other question that hangs over all of this, Peter, which is you have every right to prosecute your view of these events. You're clearly doing so. Yes. And we make time for you so people can hear from you. That's part of our job as journalists. A lot of your argument, what we just discussed in privileges, you keep saying that you have the right not to talk. You're waging this legal battle not to talk to the committee, not to talk potentially to DOJ, although, as you said, TBD. So you're risking going potentially to jail, not to talk to them. But you're out here talking in public. You do realize these investigators can hear you when you talk on TV. What we're talking about now, Ari, is the case law itself and the constitutionality of executive privilege, testimony immunity. A second key issue in the case is the separation of powers. Uh, the, this committee, this kangaroo committee, has clearly violated the separation of powers. So I'd like to suggest that it is all of a piece, right? That, you know, this is all part of an, uh, an integrated effort. Uh, they've decided to give Navarro a higher priority, for example, than Mark Meadows, right? Um, Mark Meadows hasn't been arrested, which is kind of suspicious, given the fact that he's complied in the past. 
Um, but this moves very quickly. And so, some of those things that, that kind of makes you say, hmm, what, what's going on there? Now, you know, again, I mean, actually in custody, right? Actual Trump administration official currently in custody. So I know that there are a lot of people who are very invested in the idea that the Department of Justice isn't doing anything, but Peter Navarro is in jail today. And so, you know, I would say just, just hold off. Just wait. You know, just, just maybe give it uh, just a, a glimmer of a chance and say, you know what, I'll, I'll reserve judgment for a moment. Uh, I know it's been 14 months. I know it's been a long time. Uh, but perhaps Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice is actually doing something at long last. Now, one of the themes I've, I've talked about, again, since around the first of this year, uh, the anniversary episode, uh, beginning of season two, that I uploaded on January 6th, is the idea that the January 6th committee would prime the pump uh, with regard to public relations or public opinion in advance of the public hearing. And I think we're seeing some of that, right? And I think that, you know, this Navarro news, the fact that Navarro is actually in custody today, because uh, certainly part of that, even though, of course, you know, the January 6th committee can't arrest anybody, to my mind is more evidence of closer coordination between the Department of Justice and the committee uh, than, you know, perhaps many people would have allowed. So there's been a lot that's been happening, and I'd like to cover a few of these. Um, I'm going to give you a few examples before I go into more depth into one example that features my own research. So first up, we have the revelation that according to reporting from the New York Times, Mark Meadows was burning documents in the fireplace of his office. According to this reporting, the committee has heard from former aide Cassidy Hutchinson, who testified to this, uh, specifically that Meadows burned papers after meeting with Representative Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, a House Republican who's also deeply involved in the plot to end electoral democracy in the United States. This is highly irregular, to say the least. Everything that's done in the White House goes into the public record, ever since the reforms following Watergate. And this material should all be sent to the National Archives. There's law covering the handling of government records. I'll link to the article in the show notes, um, but I'd like to, at least for a moment, turn to the law. This is a clear violation of the Presidential Records Act. If these allegations are true, Mark Meadows should go to jail. He should go directly to jail. And this is a clear violation of uh, 18 U.S. Code Section 2071. Section A. Whoever willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, or destroys, or attempts to do so, or, with intent to do so, takes and carries away any record, proceeding, map, book, paper, document, or other thing, filed or deposited with any clerk or officer of any court of the United States, or in any public office, or with any pub judicial or public officer of the United States, shall be fined under this title, or imprisoned not more than three years, or both. B. Whoever, having the custody of any such record, proceeding, map, book, document, paper, or other thing, 
willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys the same, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both, and shall forfeit his office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. As used in this subsection, the term office does not include the office held by any person as a retired officer of the United of the Armed Forces of the United States. It's a sign of how inured we have become to this kind of behavior from the Trump White House that this story didn't have longer legs. Trump allegedly routinely clogged toilets by flushing documents or even eating them. In any other administration, this would be just immediately disqualified. It would bring the, you know, dominate the news cycle for months. It shows consciousness of guilt on the part of Meadows. It's a felony, and I expect that one of the bombshell revelations at the public hearings could be testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson related to Mark Meadows' failure to comply with the Presidential Records Act. I might add that Hutchinson herself got her subpoena from the committee on November 9th, 2021. She reminds me a little bit of Navarro's aide, Joanna Miller, Here's what she had to say when she first received a White House internship. Quote, As a first-generation college student, being selected to serve as an intern alongside some of the most intelligent and driven students from across the nation, many of whom attend top universities, was an honor and a tremendous growing experience. End quote. So, Hutchinson's very young, she's pretty, She's a former intern for Steve Scalise and Ted Cruz. In the press, there have been indications that some of the best material that the committee has gotten to date have come from fairly junior people. The incentive structure of these kinds of people is entirely different from that compared to the plotters at the apex of the org chart. Mark Meadows and Peter Navarro might go to prison, but someone like a Joanna Miller or Cassidy Hutchinson might not, provided that they give useful information to the Justice Department and the committee. The next story I'd like to highlight is that Trump reportedly endorsed hanging Vice President Mike Pence. I don't think this was a joke. I don't think this is something that you can walk back on the internet claiming it was done only in jest, jest. Again, the source here is Cassidy Hutchinson, who I earnestly hope has police protection. The story is that Hutchinson saw Trump enthusiastically, quote, saying something to the effect of, maybe Mr. Pence should be hung, end quote. Karen Pence has not been available for comment. There's a difference between hanged and hung. That seems amusingly relevant here. Nonetheless, all joking aside, Hutchinson seems to have had access to the inner sanctum where Trump watched the cavalcade of violence unfold at the Capitol on January 6th. This is just something that the committee is teasing, the notion that the sitting President of the United States endorsed the public lynching of his own Vice President by an angry mob. This ought to be really big news. This is not some funny little joke on Discord or 4chan or 8coon or whatever. Uh, there is an actual mob assaulting the building where Pence was at the time uh, when this incident allegedly happened. They had erected an actual gallows. It raises the question of whether or not there was an actual plot to hang the Vice President of the United States 
and whether the president had knowledge of the scheme. One of the potential bombshells that we could see in the upcoming public hearings is the matter of the erection of the gallows. This is the most thoroughly documented crime scene in history. Everybody was recording everything. The committee has access to cell information covered on under the Capitol grounds. So what are the odds that somebody actually recorded the erection of the gallows on Capitol grounds? Somebody probably pulled up a pickup truck, hauled the lumber out of the truck bed, and erected the gallows. They'd have, they would have had to have previously pre-cut the lumber, presumably, and probably pre-drilled the holes. Um, one of my own various interests is making carpentry and, you know, looking at the gallows, the pictures of it, you can see this is pretty sloppy work. The picture person who erected the gallows probably had, you know, only a rudimentary knowledge of woodworking. I mean, if I had done this thing, there would have been cross bracing, the lumber would have been cut the length exactly, and I would have done, like, some rudimentary math on the drop, because, I mean, it's pretty clear that if you look at this gallows, there's an insufficient drop. Any victims that they would have actually hung on these gallows would have died a slow death by strangulation, as opposed to a spinal fracture, which is how a gallows is supposed to work. Um, nonetheless, you know, there were lots of cameras around. They built this thing. It wasn't necessarily quick. It would have taken eh, at least half an hour, assuming they'd done all the cutting and drilling ahead of time. And yet, we're supposed to believe that there's no video evidence of this anywhere? This might be a, a yet another example of a bombshell uh, that could be revealed at the hearings. I also suspect that the uh, hearings may also break news on the pipe bombs planted near the DNC and the RNC. We don't know who planted these bombs, but it's entirely possible that there's more video evidence that we haven't seen. I realize that conspiracy theories are evergreen, but this is clearly an important part of the plot, tailored for maximum impact. And I would expect that the committee has uncovered more evidence as part of the attack than has actually, you know, been revealed to date. They keep teasing how big this is going to be, and this would certainly be one of the bigger revelations out there uh, if they manage to break this story. So the final bit of preambulatory publicity with regard to the upcoming hearing release relates to the allegation that Barry Laudermilk of the 11th House District of Georgia may have conducted reconnaissance tours in advance of the January 6th attack, specifically on January 5th, as I discussed in the last episode. Now, something about that story bothered me. Laudermick's story with regard to the tours has kept evolving. First, he said there were no tours. Then he said there were no MAGA hats. There were just red baseball caps, which is weird. I mean, like, unless you're from Philadelphia, why, you know, why is everybody wearing red baseball caps, uh, you know? Uh, he said it was a family that he met at church. He said they had small children. But he also then said, well, they did bring some guests. So, Laudermilk couldn't keep his story straight. His story has kept evolving. And this is exactly the kind of thing that prosecutors, such as the experienced prosecutors working for the January 6th committee, looked for. And so I began to ask myself whether it was possible that someone from Laudermilk's district district, who'd actually been on the tour, uh, could have been subsequently charged. 
So with Laudermill changing his story so many times, you know, it's possible, right? I mean, he said, well, you know, no one was charged. But again, he's been, he's, he's changed his story so many times. You know, why should we take his word for, word for it? So I looked up all the home addresses of all 19 defendants from Georgia who've been charged in the connection with the January 6th attack. Of these 19, uh, only one hailed from Loudermilk's home district in Georgia. But it's kind of a doozy. It's Lisa Eisenhart. You'll recall that Lisa Eisenhart is the mother of Eric Munchel, the so-called zip-tie guy, who went inside the Senate chamber with six zip-tie-style restraints, perhaps in an effort to kidnap members of Congress. And they made it into the Senate chamber very fast. So, in looking at this, a couple of things really stand out. The first is that Eisenhart's home address is just 2.7 miles from Loudermilk's district office in Woodstock, Georgia. She is someone who is certainly a hardline Trumpist, and Loudermilk himself is a pretty Trumpy guy, which raises the possibility that she might have done some work on behalf of Loudermilk's campaign. The second thing I noticed is that according to the sworn affidavit in support of Loudermilk's charges, quote, subpoenaed records from the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Washington, D.C. established that Eisenhart rented a hotel room on January 4th, 2021, and checked out from the room on January 7th, 2021. She provided a Georgia license under the name of Lisa Eisenhart as proof of identification to rent the room. Video surveillance from the Grand Hyatt Hotel establishes that Eisenhart and Munchel were together at the Grand Hyatt and present in the District of Columbia on January 6, 2021, the day of the Capitol's siege. The photograph below depicts the pair leaving the hotel at approximately 12.37 p.m., shortly before the joint session of Congress began, and a little over an hour before... Actually, a little over an hour after before Capitol barricades were breached. Now, this is, is an odd error. That's, that's literally the text. I, I, the text I've double-checked it several times. A little over an hour after before the Capitol barricades were breached. It was clearly a little over an hour before Capitol barricades were breached. Um... But for some reason that, you know, it's a typo. I don't know how both after and before appear next. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but the error is in the original. So Loudermilk allegedly gave a tour on January 5th. And Eisenhart and Munchel were definitely in D.C. from the 4th through the 7th. Again, I am fairly obsessed with the travel and accommodations of that plans that were, you know, of the mob attacking the Capitol. Now, I, I've searched through hundreds of charging documents for references to travel accommodations, mainly because I, I strongly suspect that the coup plotters paid to bring the mob to D.C. What I've found is that it's fairly unusual for there to be any reference at all in these charging documents to travel and accommodations. So we can infer here that it's significant in some way to the FBI, well, the government's case, um, 
that they were in D.C. at that time. And in context, the reference to their stay at the Grand Hyatt would appear to be simply just to establish that these defendants were in D.C. and during this time frame. But again, in most cases, this is something that the Department of Justice didn't necessarily feel necessary to do. Now, I'm not saying that Eisenhart was definitely on the tour given by Loudermill, but to my mind, it's suspicious given the number of times that his story has evolved and the fact that we know Eisenhart arrived on January 4th. She was there on the 5th. Did she arrive on the 4th specifically to take a tour with Loudermilk on the 5th? If the tour Loudermilk now admits took place on the 5th genuinely was a tour of constituents and someone from that tour was charged, it would have to be Lisa Eisenhart unless if someone who's charged in a single case. So, Eisenhart was in D.C. on the 5th of January, and she's the only known defendant from the 11th House District in Georgia charged in the attack. This case was clearly handled on an expedited basis by the Department of Justice. The criminal complaint was issued for Munchel on January the 10th. The affidavit is dated January 15th, 2021. And Eisenhart was charged on the 16th of January, 2021. Of course, there's good reason why they would have gone after Eisenhart and Munchel quickly, because the fact that they appeared ready to kidnap members of Congress made kind of a big splash in the media. But it also raises the issue of whether or not they had other reasons to target them. In particular, out of all these members of the mob, they went after them so very quickly. Did they have video evidence showing that perhaps they had been in the Capitol on January 5th? So, you know, again, who knows? But I think that the issue of the identity of persons on the Loudermilk tour on January 5th will come up at the hearings, as well as the possibility of other members who may have given tours, including Lauren Boebert, who Steve Cohen has named as someone who led a large tour on January 5th. So this is going to be the last episode that I record before the public hearings next Thursday. I'm going to uh, try to release something as quick as I possibly can following the occasion of those public hearings. But, again, I anticipate, you know, they have, they have teased the idea that there's going to be new material. I really believe that there will be new material. And that, uh, again, you know, there are some people saying, well, this could be overhyped. I don't think it's possible to overhype this. Uh, having looked at this very closely, every single little bit of evidence I've seen uh, makes me believe that it, it's worse than, you know, the general public would recognize. And that the depth of the connections and the number of people who were involved is just too large to ignore, right? I mean, there are so many people who could offer damning testimony, whether they be lower-level Trump administration officials, uh, people, you know, like aides to various Trump administration officials, uh, or whether or not, you know, the people associated with Mike Pence, right? You know, again, I mean, if they want to hang your boss, you might want to say something to Congress about it. Uh, or, you know, the, the possibility of various people in sealed indictments, as we've seen with 
Now, McDonald, you know, I believe he's probably covered by a sealed indictment, uh, or certainly uh, Michael Todd Wilson, uh, the Oath Keeper. So there's a lot that could come out, and there's new video evidence. Specifically, they've teased the possibility of new video evidence. Now, I've tried to highlight some of the things that, you know, the erection of the gallows, the, the bomber, right? New video evidence, the sedition tours, the, all of these things. We haven't had any of the video evidence, and particularly of the sedition tours. So the committee is sitting on some good stuff. So I highly urge, I mean, if, you, if you're taking the time to listen to this, you are certainly someone who's going to be watching this. Um, and if you don't watch it live, Obviously, it, it will be available on C-SPAN, certainly, and uh, many other places as well. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm sure the January 6th committee is going to post a link to, uh, to all of this on their website. So, the next time I talk to you will be after the public hearings. And I very much look forward to it. I'm sure uh, many of my listeners will as well. And we will see. In the meantime, I do expect that there will probably be more bombshell kind of, you know, uh, bits of information coming out of the committee. Um, you know, who, who knows? I mean, they arrested Peter Navarro today. Could they arrest Mark Meadows? We don't know what's going to happen. But it's not going to be a slow news week in any event. So please uh, take the time, if you could, to uh, rate the show on the podcast of your choice. And I will see you again next time. Thank you so much.